Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About podcast here on the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. My name is Daniel Olinger, and my co-host here today, and for the rest of this podcast duration going forward, Sean Kennedy. Uh, so, Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Daniel. We got uh, NBA basketball that counts ready to tip off tonight with two games, and uh, Sixers basketball just two days away. So, it's been a long time coming, but I think we're all ready to get uh, back underway here. Yeah, so just so everyone knows, this podcast that me and Sean are doing is mainly going to be analysis-based. Like, not like we're not going super nerdy every time, although there will definitely be times for super nerdy stuff. But we're talking about games, not practice. And we're talking about what happens in those games, why we think they are happening. Like, and we're just talking all things Sixers about this team that we love so much and we know you, the readers of Liberty Ballers, love so much too. So yeah, Absolutely. So we're looking forward to uh, starting this new endeavor with everybody listening out there. Totally. And for those who don't know, just a little bit of background on me and Shauna. For me personally, I am currently going into my sophomore year at Northwestern in the Medill School of Journalism. Just started for writing for Liberty Ballers this past year. Actually published my first piece on the day the pandemic kind of set in that day Rudy Gobert was announced as being testing positive for the virus so it's been an interesting start here at LV and uh, I also write for the SB Nation blog at Northwestern Inside and You where I'm now an editor and I also have my own blog backtothebasket.org I'll post some stuff occasionally I was doing some podcasts there this summer but we'll probably most of my podcasting effort will be put into this going forward and yeah Huge fan of the Sixers and have totally loved writing about them the last few months. Uh, Sean, how about yourself? So for those of you out there listening that don't know me, I'm the deputy editor at Liberty Ballers. I joined back in 2018 and I've been uh, covering them with LB since then. I uh, have some experience as a credentialed reporter at games, which uh, it's interesting experiencing how the media coverage has shifted since the coronavirus epidemic. Um, and uh, everything being done on Zoom, obviously, right now, and other video conference calls. So that's all been a interesting kind of thing to watch and navigate. Uh, before my time at Liberty Ballers, I was writing my own blog at uh, Philly Fast Break, which haven't updated in a few years, but it's still out there in the world. And uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. Um, I'm in my 30s, so Daniel and I will come at things from a different generational perspective a little bit, but uh, hopefully that will... <laughs> only enrich the conversation and uh, give people a different uh, viewpoint out there that are listening. We already had a taste of that when we were coming up for names for this podcast and you thought you suggested the Philly Max and I had like a vague memory of it, like, but not totally. Do you want to explain that really quick? Were there any other listeners my age who don't quite remember it? Sure. So, so back when Elton Brand was a player and not the general manager of the Sixers, um, they first signed him and they didn't sign him to a, a max contract coming over from the Clippers, but they referred to it as the Philly max, which was essentially them saying, I would say incorrectly, that they weren't a big enough market just to throw max contract money at top free agents and they basically said like hey this is this is as much as we can give which you know i don't understand philadelphia is a, a very large city in both in terms of population and in terms of the sports presence and fandom here um and i think uh, that's definitely changed where the mindset is that 
Philadelphia sports teams should be competing with the, the big the big boys, and uh, they have just as much money to throw around as anybody else. So I'm glad the Philly Max is a, a thing of the past. So I, I like our new our new name better. I mean, for my generation, the Philly Max is giving a guy like $30 million more than he deserves, which we saw twice this past summer of Tobias Harris and Al Horford. So always going to have to live with that. But moving on to basketball that is happening instead of contract talk, uh, the Sixers have played three scrimmages and it's been really fun to watch them. And we're just going to break down some of our biggest takeaways from them. I'll cut that part out. I have... <laughs> That was rough. <laughs> um, all right, I'll just like go back there. So we're going to talk about these scrimmages that have been going on and some of our biggest takeaways from what's been going on those games. And I just want to start here. Matisse Thibel was already one of the Sixers' most beloved players, beloved by all the fans. Just the young rookie was awesome on defense. I think he's gotten even better on defense. Sean, would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, he's been a terror for the opposition in the three scrimmage games that we watched. Uh, just he, 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 I think one of the biggest concerns was his tendency to gamble when he first started with the Sixers coming out as as a rookie, and that was a big concern for Brett Brown, kind of navigating, you know, when he should go after those steals and when he should kind of play more solid straight up defense and it, it led to a lot of fouls early on but I think uh, at this point he's really kind of figuring out the nuances of elite defense at the NBA level and we're, we're kind of seeing the you know the product of that where he's still putting up those big stock totals but his, mm-hmm. his foul his foul rate is down um, guys aren't bl- blowing by him uh, when he misses on those gambles nearly as frequently. It, it's all very encouraging from him. Yeah, Kevin Love, and for those of you who don't read Liberty Ballers who might be checking his podcast out, not that Kevin Love, the Kevin Love who runs our website. He wrote about Matisse Thibel gambling on steals, like you said, but he showed how against the Mavs in that one scrimmage, it kind of hurt him when he was guarding Luka Doncic because he kind of took advantage of that, you know, like, sealing him at one player when Matisse would try and wrap around Luca knew how to avoid that so I think what's become evident with Matisse is he's like the Sixers best small point guard defender because he's quick enough to keep up with those kinds of guys and his length just bothers the heck out of them like none of us will ever forget what he did to Kemba Walker on opening night just kept bothering him from behind he like couldn't shake him and I think it's really important for the Sixers because the last few years it's like been a common thing the Sixers get lit up by small point guards that they aren't quick enough to contain and just now like and again back to Kemba Walker like last year he destroyed the Sixers in that 160 point game and then you go right to opening night and Matisse locks him up so I, I do think that kind of rangy quickness he has and he just he does seem like he's gotten better at knowing what he's good at and I think so yeah I, I do think he can't he's the, not the best option to defend like bigger wings just because I think strength wise he's not there yet like again with Luka Doncic he's kind of like just pounding him a little bit inside but I think it's okay because the Sixers already have so many big guys to kind of handle that so having a guy who's like specifically the point guard or perimeter scorer stopper is a good thing I mean look no further than someone like Kawhi Leonard when his first few years in the league like the Spurs a lot of times like had him Whenever they would go up against OKC in the playoffs, he was guarding Russell Westbrook a lot because he had the size and quickness to contain him. 
Yeah, no question. Matisse is, is valuable in that aspect of his game. Um, I'd also throw Josh Richardson in in the conversation. Yeah. As, if you're talking about guys who have come in and can guard point guards, uh, you know, Brett talked the other day about how Josh kind of gets uh, lost in the shuffle when mm-hmm. all, all these names are talked about as far as the, the Sixers uh, big names are concerned. Um, and Josh definitely played a big role in uh, that effort against Kemba that you were discussing mm-hmm. there. So, yeah, but you definitely need more than one option. So having a couple great options in Josh and Matisse, as well as somebody like Ben Simmons who can guard anywhere one through five and do that at an elite level to kind of throw a different option at a, at a, at a small point guard. Um, it's all really great for the Sixers that they have the kind of depth to be able to do that. And um, yeah, we've seen in these scrimmages that Matisse is kind of solidified between him and Furkan. Korkmaz being the two uh, first wings off the bench, which is, it's good to see. A lot of times coaches don't have that kind of trust in rookies, but Matisse will definitely be a main part of the rotation. No, yeah, and just real quick before we move on from Matisse, because it reminded me, you brought up Korkmaz too. It's a specific thing um, I was noticing. I, I brought up in my last article, how I was talking about how bad the Sixers played some of their pick and roll coverage against OKC. Particularly, I was kind of harsh on Tobias Harris and Furkan Korkmaz for the way they would hedge and pick and rolls and it just wasn't doing anything. But it's happened, it happened again in the Dallas scrimmage where Furkan would come out and like hedge, the guys would blow by him. But then Matisse out of nowhere, like he's already switched kind of onto the man that Furkan was guarding. And then he sees Furkan get beat and then somehow recovers like to ju- he just like jumps straight across the court and like bothers the shot. It's really incredible how much range he has. And I think like those are things that don't really show up in the box score that, not necessarily are contributed to like his overall defensive impact, but it, you can just see Matisse like bothers teams. And he, I, I mean, what he did to Dennis Schroeder was just at, like disgusting. He did not let him get any space at, at all on the court. Yep. Yeah. Then that was a, a big thing coming out of Washington for him was, you know, they played a lot of zone defense and people were talking about how would that translate to the NBA, you know, teams barely play zone aside from a few exceptions like Miami that maybe plays a somewhat significant portion of their time at zone. Um, but Sixers almost never do. But when you're talking about his skills in that capacity, you know, that's a lot of off ball work. Like you're talking about where he can read that somebody got beat and, and get into the lane quickly and kind of disrupt the action of the offense. And that all comes from his experience as a zone defender. So uh, even when you're, you know, something important to keep in mind when you're doing draft analysis or player evaluation is that even though skills aren't directly transferable, you know, he still has that capability, which will translate to other areas. And we're seeing that now with Matisse. Yeah, definitely. So uh, that was my first takeaway. Sean, do you have a big takeaway that you've had from the scrimmages? I think my biggest one is just that Ben Simmons is fully healthy. Mm-hmm. That that was, you know, they they said he was feeling good, but you know, when it's June and nobody's actually working out and we have no knowledge aside from, you know, an off, off the hand comment from Brett in a media conference call that we had was the first one we had in a month. Uh, you you kind of worry a little bit. Uh, Simmons obviously missed the last uh, section of games before the league suspended play with the, the back injury. We heard he was feeling so terrible when he went to the locker room in the Milwaukee game that he was vomiting, like none of that was good. And, you know, it's been months since that happened, obviously, but back injuries are tricky and they can linger. Wait, wait, wait a second, Sean. Are you telling me the Sixers medical staff made a mistake? 
I'm not saying they made a mistake. I'm saying they may not have been as prudent as possible. And I, yeah, I know, I know that the history with them and it's, you know, a lot of it's not very good, but it was a big game. I'm sure Ben did everything in his power to lobby to play in that. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to cut him a little slack in that, re, in that regard. Um, but yeah, he's, you know, he nearly had a triple double in one of the scrimmages. He's been, I, I would say the best player on the court in m- each of the games. Um, and maybe not the Dallas game, uh, but the first two games, he was definitely the best player on the court. And, you know, a healthy Ben Simmons is a top 15-ish player in the league. So right. they're going to need him come playoff time. Um, and it's good to, good to see him and good to see him healthy. Yeah, it definitely is very good to see him healthy. And you said top 15-ish player. I've actually, reading around, I think, like some of the best NBA writers out there, Kevin O'Connor, Zach Lowe, John Hollinger, all – put out published their ballots all had Ben Simmons third team all NBA guard so it seems like I mean most people agree Ben has been that special the one thing I've just been like concerned about with him that I've noticed is like him finishing around the rim like it's always been sometimes like a problem sometimes but he has had some like really wild finishes where he's like hitting the top of the backboard or spinning like into like just straight into traffic so I'm a little little concerned about that just because it's like the thing like the the guy I think Ben gets compared to or at least thought of in the same kind of way as sometimes is Giannis in the sense that they're these huge like sprinter athletes that basically intimidate everyone the amazing their amazing combination of speed and strength but one of the main differences is well obviously that Giannis is a little more willing to shoot but but probably bigger than that is that a guy like Giannis, like Giannis is an incredible at-rim finisher, just using either hand and like just powering up through people for dunks, whereas Ben tries to like finesse his way around people and I think has some has some trouble like laying it up at certain angles. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't initiate the contact as much as I would like to see, and maybe that stems a little bit from his not being incredibly confident in his free throw shooting. Uh, but yeah, he's not... He's not elite in that aspect of his game by any means, but there's still very few guys in the league I would take ahead of him rumbling ahead in transition. And oh yeah, definitely. Like I was, I was more saying as I mean, it can be in transition too where his finishing problems come up, but like I think it's a bigger problem in the half court. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's part of the reason that Brett is trying to shake at the point and Ben Simmons at the nominal power forward position is to kind of uh, alleviate some of that time that Simmons has the ball in his hands. And hopefully he'll be willing to take a a few more of those corner threes like we saw in the first scrimmage. But uh, yeah, him, you know, willing to take one or two outside shots and just crashing the glass um, is I think a hugely beneficial thing for the team versus him just sitting in that dunker spot and clogging things up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
do you think he's going to shoot? Because we only saw those two threes in the first scrimmage and then no threes from there on. And I think it's pretty clear if he's going to shoot threes, it is going to be in the corner. Like nothing, it's not going to be above the break. No, absolutely not. Yeah. He's that's, that seems to be the only spot he's comfortable. Um, I think we will see it. I mean, who knows at this point with Ben, but even the last game against um, Dallas, we saw there were situations where he was open in the corner and calling for the ball and he just didn't get it. But I, I think he's he's in the spots and he looks like he's in a position to catch and shoot. Um, so I think I think we will. I don't think it's going to be every game, but I, I don't think that it was a it was a one off event like we kind of saw back when he took that stretch against the Knicks and Cavs and, and made one in each of those games, but then he stopped altogether. I don't think he's going to stop altogether. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical just about how much he's going to shoot. Cause it's been such a huge talking point the last few years that it's just, it's like once I start seeing him take one or two attempts every game for like five straight games, I'll start to believe it. But you, I, you said something interesting there about how Ben was kind of like spotting up sometimes and calling for the ball and might not have been getting it. I've noticed that with a lot of Sixers players during this scrimmage, like this team just does not seem very good at running pick and rolls to me and that they would just like missing skip passes a lot, not being able to create space or obviously the spacing's always been a huge problem for this team based on just lack of shooting generally. But like Alec Burks ran a bunch of pick and rolls in the third quarter and like I think Furcon would be spotting up like on the other side of the court and just he is open and the pass just doesn't get thrown. Ben Simmons, a very good passer, but I don't think is a great skip passer like Luka Doncic or LeBron James, where as soon as like the pick and roll like morphs in the way they want it to, they can immediately overhead skip that to the corner. He's more of a Ben. Ben can get like a straight line run to the rim, and if guys converge there, he's good at like whipping it across the baseline. But like, do you know what I'm saying? I don't think the Sixers just are very good at that, which is not a good thing when a lot of playoff offense can diverge into pick and rolls. Yeah, no, you're right. They're not a good pick and roll team. And uh, Jimmy Butler probably has some things he could add to that conversation. Um, But I, yeah, I think they have guys that that's not the best area of their game. And I don't think Joel, I, I think he's obviously such a great, interior players that they've tried to focus a little bit more on that Mm -hmm. and with him being the centerpiece of the team that lends itself to there not being as much pick and roll action and then it's kind of a a snake eating its own tail situation where these guys that aren't great at pick and roll don't get as many reps doing it and then they don't improve in that area so it's kind of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy with them um so they they went to other things like last year they had the Joel and JJ two-man action that worked really well and all the dribble handoffs they try to do and they do the pin down screens with Tobias and Josh and whoever else now um so there's different ways that you can initiate offense um it doesn't all have to be a Houston style four out with the point guard ball handler at the top and running that pick and roll from the top of the key um Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's certainly not their strength by any means yeah, and one thing that's been talked about a lot on our site and on other, like, Sixers, like, outlets out there is the snug pick-and-roll between Embiid and Simmons that was basically the whole – their main attack method in the Clippers game that the Sixers – like, if you ask the Sixers anything, they love to reference that Clippers game they won and the Bucks game on Christmas is, like, those are proof that 
we are a great team and we can beat these other great teams. But, and I think it is really important because that, that snug pick and roll does work with Embiid and Simmons where Embiid screens the screens of the block just because you're taught to go under on Simmons because he can't shoot as well. But if you go under, like Simmons is going to be at the rim by the time you get back up. And what's important is that it has to be Embiid because when they tried to, they tried to run it some in like the Thunder and Mavs game with Al Horford, Al just does not set hard enough screens or at least not the level of screen Joel Embiid was saying where it just, it didn't bother the defense. They just go over it and it would be like nothing even happened. You know what I'm saying? Like you need someone that like as massive as Embiid to be in the paint. They're unable to just like take someone out. Yeah. It's, it all, you know, a lot of people look at the ball handler and pick and roll action, but I think the the screener gets an un, like an has an undue amount of responsibility in mm-hmm. that play succeeding, and so you look at a guy like Stephen Adams who doesn't get a lot of credit as a great offensive player, but his ability to set hard screens and really take up a lot of space is an underrated part of that succeeding. So, yeah, it's you'd like Joel to be a better screener. Um, He's not. It's certainly an area of improvement, but there's enough other areas where he's an elite player that you kind of just watch over it, I guess. Yeah, I think he's not a great screener in like a traditional like pick and roll out on the perimeter, but I think he did do a really good job like inside because I just think whenever it's in, like you're having any kind of action at all, no matter what's happening on the basketball court, if it's in the paint, Embiid is good at it because he's just that much bigger and like stronger than everyone else. Yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Any Anything down low, I think he plays with a little bit more intention. Mm-hmm. Like, he just gets more excited when he's near the basket and everything takes a little bit more uh, meaning and he, he puts more focus into his actions when he's down there than when he's kind of wandering around on the perimeter. Um, so, yeah, I, I like we've seen the snug pick and rolls. That's I think that's a great set for Brett to utilize and uh, we'll probably see more of it in the future, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Any other big takeaways you had? Because I've pretty much gone through most of mine. No, I guess uh, we kind of touched on it, but I think Al being the first big man off the bench and then Furkan and Matisse being the two wings that Brett is going to roll with. And then he talked about having a nine-man rotation. So I think it's kind of up in the air who that ninth man is going to be. But I I think the fact that the the first eight are set is the the other thing I kind of took from the scrimmage period. Yeah, I did jot down some, like, what I think the rotation's going to look like, like, like because just, like, observing what he was doing during the scrimmage. I think it's going to be Al and Furkan check in at, like, the seven-minute mark of the first quarter for Embiid and Shake because it's clear that Brett kind of wants to tie those two together. And then probably you're getting Matisse and, like, Embiid and Shake checking back later in the quarter. And if, if I was going to predict who I think that ninth man will be, I think they're leaning towards Alec Burks just because they do want to have like that kind of we can give someone the ball and they can create some type of offense, which even if he's not maybe a great overall player, like Alec Burks can do that. So I think they're leaning that that way. I, I wouldn't mind if they went with Glenn Robinson. I'm fine with Glenn Robinson too. The one thing that I think is clear is that Mike Scott is definitely not going to be that ninth guy. He looked really bad in all his action. Yeah, he's continued to – poor regular season with a poor time in the Orlando bubble as far as his on-court play. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think Scott is going to be 
a guy they turn to when the the rotation tightens up. Um, yeah, I think it is either Burks or GR three, and it'll probably depend on a game to game basis what they need. If they need a little more defense and size, they might go right. Robinson. If they need, you know, hey, we're down eight and the offense has been kind of stagnant, they might throw Burks out there and see what happens. So, mm. I don't, yeah, I think it's and there's still eight seeding games to come, so we'll see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. And speaking of those eight seeding games, that's our next topic of discussion. Our predictions for how we think the Sixers will perform in those eight games. I took the lead on the last one. Of so, Sean, how about you get started with your predictions for, or like, just general what your thoughts are on how the what you're seeing with these games for the Sixers? Yeah. So, I've seen the the over under at five and a half wins, mm-hmm. and everyone kind of thinks that over is a lock. Because they got some really easy games in there. They got the the Wizards, who are basically running a G League squad out there. They they got the Spurs, who are missing uh, Lamarcus and uh, don't really have a shot at making the playoffs. So they've been very vocal about hey, we're just using this time for development. Um, they got you know Suns, who should be a win, and. Then a couple of tough ones against Houston and Toronto, but those are towards the end. Those are their last two games when teams might already have seeds locked up and not have anything to play for, really. So you look at all that, and it's it looks like five and a half is a sure thing. But knowing the Sixers, they will find a way to lose one or two games that we all expect them to win. It, it's that's Philadelphia basketball for you. And four of these games are nominally road games, so we'll see how not having the Sixers PA video stuff going on will, will come into play for them um, with, with the video board they have set up there in the bubble um, and, and playing all the, uh, the sound effects that they do for Sixers home games, which are still been going on in the scrimmages. So I don't know. I'm going to say five and three. Uh, I'll take the under. I think they, they lose a couple of the games to, you know, between Toronto, Houston, Portland, and Indiana, they might lose two of those, and then they'll drop one against the uh, lesser teams that everyone will be super upset about for two days and then forget because it ultimately doesn't matter. So that's that's where I go with it. I mean, the home court advantage just isn't the same without, like, the booing of the home fans in Philadelphia. That Like, Joel Embiid admit, admitted on the Rights to Sanchez podcast that the like it really does help like when the fans boo because he says they're holding me accountable like when I'm playing bad I know I'm playing bad so I just don't know how you can get that same experience kind of from everything but I have to pipe it in yeah that's what he suggested too and B was said he wanted to them to send in some boos but um I I I agree with you that I think the Sixers are going to go five and three I've kind of gone through game by game what I'm thinking so the Pacers are being written off. So, like, if we're just going by – I'll read it off, like, here in order. The Pacers are the Sixers' first game. The Sixers went one and two against them this season. And the only win was that game where Ben Simmons had all those steals late that kind of steal the game for the Sixers. But, and the, but then you also look at the two losses. Joel Embiid did not play in either of them. So, you know, give and take. I mean, their Pacers are kind of being written off because Sabonis is – seems like he's out with the foot injury. We're not sure about Oladipo. It's just kind of like they're missing their best guys. What are they really going to do? I mean, I think the Pacers are still dangerous. There's still a lot of good players on the team. I would never underestimate any team that has TJ McConnell on it. <laughs> still my my favorite player of all time. 
But I, he's I going to relish the underdog role this weekend for sure. Oh, he, he would love to drop like 20 on the Sixers to get that opening win. But um, no, I think the Sixers can win that game. The Spurs, like 11th, the Spurs are the next game, 11th in offensive points per 100, but 24th in defense. And overall, I just don't think they're that good right now. So I would think that is a win. The Wizards, who could definitely beat the Sixers because the Sixers would definitely not take them seriously and then give up like 45 to Rui Hachimura. So that could definitely happen. I'll say the Sixers win that game. But then this is a game that caught my eye right away. The fourth one against the Orlando Magic, who the like I just looked this up. Did you know the Orlando Magic all-time against the Sixers are 79 and 38? Yeah, they always struggle with Orlando. It's it is awful like when they play Orlando. They always do something wrong. And I've been watching like so because I write for Inside and You, I've actually been watching like all the Orlando Magic scrimmages, especially the fourth quarters, because they have a reserve on the end of their bench, Vic Law, who is the only Northwestern player in the NBA right now. He's just barely there. So I, I've been watching him and actually have wrote a big piece about him for Inside and You the other day. So I've been watching a lot of the Magic and I think they're like they're not a joke, definitely. Like if they were out in the West or those other teams trying to compete for the eighth spot, like they'd have a chance. I, I think Jonathan Isaac is just a monster on defense. Like Vooch is a good offensive player. Aaron Gordon does stuff that helps your team win. Fournier's had a career year. They have decent like guard depth with Fultz, Carter Williams, and DJ Augustine. Like that's a legit team. And I knowing the Sixers, I, I think they're gonna get like smacked by the magic. Yeah, that's definitely a letdown spot for for Philadelphia. And yeah, as you mentioned, Orlando always gives them trouble. And Vuce's ability to space the floor as a oh, center, indeed, so much. Yeah, it it pulls him out of the paint, and then the defense just isn't as effective for the Sixers. And yeah, there's I could definitely see them losing that, and everyone being really upset that like Fultz had a good game. It's like yeah, Fultz and MCW lead Orlando to a win. And uh, everyone just talks about how they, they, they let both those guys go. James Ennis, too. Yeah, it's there's a lot of Sixers cast-offs. So that'll yeah. be a revenge game for all those guys. Yeah, so I'm thinking that's going to be a loss. And from there, their last four games go Blazers, Suns, Raptors, Rockets. Now, the thing with the Blazers and the Suns is if they lose right away in their first few games, it could be out already. And the already poor teams could be, like, putting their subs in, which would make those probably automatic wins for the Sixers. But – I mean, the Blazers, like, it's a legit team. Like, all it takes is one great Damian Lillard game, and they could definitely lose that. The Suns, like, the Suns, I, I actually kind of admire what they've done, that you know how the Nets and Wizards have basically just given up already? The Suns, like, watching these scrimmages, like, they're trying, even though they have, like, the least statistical, like, the lowest statistical chance of making the playoffs just on the way the records work out in the West. But, like, they seem like they really just want to take this time to get better. I Mikhail Bridges is now like making everything he shoots, which just again, it's like one of those things I have to like look away when he does. We're trying thinking back to 2018 draft night, but yeah, as as a a Villanova <laughs> alum myself, it I was ecstatic for about 23 minutes that they had him, and yeah, I I, I loved watching him during his uh, time as a Wildcat, and I hope he succeeds. But it is kind of bittersweet that uh, the Sixers uh, draft. Draft night traded him away, and he, he looks to be really excelling while Zaire has, you know, had all the complications to his, the start of his career. 
Not to mention that the Suns have a center combination of like DeAndre Ayton, who's big enough to not get bullied by Embiid, and Aaron Baines, who can stretch to the floor and bring Embiid out of the paint. Another Sixer cast off in Dario Saric for a potential revenge game. So that's, I mean, I could definitely see them losing one to the Suns or Blazers there. Then you have the Raptors and the Rockets. I actually think the Raptors will be locked into their spot by that point as the two seed. So that could definitely be a win. And then the Rockets, I feel like they would lose to the Rockets because it's so chaotic out in the three through six seeds in the West that I don't think anything's going to be locked up to the last like game. So the Rockets could definitely come winning. So I'm thinking five and three about. Yeah, uh, I think that's a good analysis of the situation. Um, yeah, Portland, you know, they're they're actually healthy now. They have Nurkic and Zach Collins back. And then between Dame and CJ, one of those guys is liable to go off against Philadelphia. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, Phoenix, another team that has a lot of good pieces. They're, they're, they look to be playing hard. And Booker could, you know, those score first guards against the Sixers, there's always a chance that they have a big game. Um, yeah, and then we'll see how it shakes out with Toronto and Houston um, and their desire to play based on what the standings are like at that portion of the season. But yeah, either of them could obviously take a game against the Sixers. So yeah, I think five and three is five and a half was just too fishy a line. So I feel like five and five like- and three is where it falls. It's just hard to go six and two over a stretch of eight games in the NBA. These are like they're even though there are bad teams left, there aren't like there aren't like Knicks teams left where you can just beat up on them over and over again with no consequences. Like these teams aren't terrible. Like we just talked about the Suns and Magic. They're frisky. They're not bad. Yeah. It's and you know, Embiid's gonna probably tweak something and they'll sit him as a precautionary measure and then, you know whatever Sixers injury luck might befall them. It's how it stands today is not how it's going to stand a couple weeks from now. So um, yeah, I I think there's definitely going to drop a few along the way and fans just have to remember that uh, it doesn't really matter unless uh, you have a strong feeling about where they fall in the playoff seedings, which I I think we're going to talk about next. You are, it's almost like, we talked about what we were going to talk about before this podcast, but <laughs> it's, it might be our first episode, but you know, we're, we're not, we're not rookies at this. Yeah. So last, last thing here, although it's a big subject, should the Sixers try and move up to the four or five seed or should they quote unquote tank and go for the six seed? I think it's basically mathematically impossible for them to drop to seven. So they're really in the, or even move up to three. So it's definitely that four to six range. And the debate has been because the Celtics look like they're going to be the three seed from what we're seeing. And the Sixers this season have matched up very well against the Celtics, went three and one, had beat them on opening night, had the game in Boston where Embiid absolutely dominated after being called out by Charles Barkley and Shaq on TNT. So there's like, that's kind of incentive where as the heat are expected to be in that four or five matchup and the Sixers went one and three against them which is kind of made some people think, are the Heat just a bad matchup? Where should the Sixers try and stay there? Like, just maybe sit out some games and drop, make sure they stay there. So, I don't really have any strong feelings one way or another. I do agree Boston feels like a slightly better matchup. And there's also going to be the time at some point when Gordon Hayward leaves the bubble for his child's birth. So, Mm -hmm. that's kind of something that's waiting where Boston will be a slightly yeah. weaker roster. Um, so, but I'm, I'm not 
scared of Miami. Like some people seem mm-hmm. to kind of want to duck the heat. Uh, maybe that's just cause I was at the game early in the season when Jay Rich went off and had all those threes and the Sixers kind of rolled Miami. And maybe that's just stuck in my brain. Wait, wait oh. one, one second, Sean. So you were at that Miami game. This was the only, since I lived in Evanston, Illinois, the past year, the one Sixers game I was able to go to was the second Miami heat game, which was the Sixers first home loss where they had the huge lead in the two, three zone just obliterated them the rest of the game. So <laughs> quite a different we're coming at it from different perspectives <laughs> for sure um yeah but you know i guess we're all just kind of assuming indiana is going to drop to the six and if that's the case i feel like philadelphia will be locked into that four or five regardless of how they do i mean we'll see how the pacers perform in these seeding games but as you discussed you know sabonis his status is up in the air with his foot and we don't know what's going on with the old depot, but I don't, I don't know either way. If it's Boston or Miami in the first round, I feel like Philadelphia can win either one of those. They're both tough matchups, but winnable matchups in my mind. And then whether you want to get Milwaukee in the second round or the third round, I don't, I don't really see how that matters. You're going to have to go through them one way or another. So yeah, I, I don't I don't really have a strong feeling one way or another. I think the most important thing is that they enter the playoffs healthy and with the rotation figured out and kind of, you know, everything gelling together with, you know, shake in the starters and everything just looking like well-oiled machine. I think that's the most important thing, not whether they finish fourth, fifth, or sixth. Yeah, so you said how the Pacers are kind of assumed to drop down to the six based on the Sixers have an easy schedule, at least – when you look at it on paper, they have that stretch of Spurs, Wizards, Magic, Blazers, Suns, which are five of the weaker teams in the bubble. Where, whereas you look at the Pacers and Heat schedule, the Pacers have the Sixers, the Wizards, the Magic, the Suns, then Lakers, Heat, Rockets, Heat. So the Heat and Pacers are playing themselves twice at the end, there, which could get very interesting. Say one of those teams wants to match up with someone else, like maybe they would want the Sixers instead of the Celtics, or they want the Celtics instead of the Sixers, and one of them throws those games. And then an important thing to remember is that even though the Heat are two games up on both the Sixers and the Pacers, the Heat schedule is just brutal. Nuggets, Raptors, Celtics, Bucks, Suns, Pacers, Thunder, Pacers. Like, there's no automatic win in there at all. Yeah, that's a rough stretch. Not to, not to mention that, like, they don't even – because the Thunder and Pacers are going to be fighting for seeding in those last few games, so they don't even get the benefit of, like, having a great team locked into their seed in the last few games and they might rest their starters. No, they get the Celtics, Bucks, and Raptors right away. So that could definitely be a problem for them. I do think – I agree with you on the point that it sh- what should be the determining factor for what the Sixers want to do is would you rather play – who would you want to play either the Heat or the Celtics in the first round, not what round do you want to meet Milwaukee in because chances are – if anyone wants to win this title, they're going to have to beat Milwaukee at some point. So, and I think it's, it's kind of like that. It's like a vanishing point. It's like that doesn't matter what round you have to beat them and you're just going to have to do it eventually. That's just semantics at that point. So I definitely wouldn't say, Oh, we have to make sure we stay in that sixth spot. So we wait till the conference finals to be in like, first of all, that means you're assuming they beat the Celtics and the Raptors, which I would be very surprised the Sixers could pull off both those series, but. Yeah, Toronto is just a team like, you know, between Gasol guarding Joel and, you know, all the guard play they have between Lowry and Van Vliet and 
they're just a complete roster and they seem to give the Sixers a lot of trouble. So I don't think either them or Milwaukee is a team that I'd relish the Sixers going up against. So it it's kind of doesn't really matter to me at this point. They're, they're going to play who they're going to play. And it just matters that the Sixers are the best version of themselves. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all that's really important. In terms of like matchup specifics, just my perspective. Now, I think the Celtics are just a better team than the Heat. Just no matchups like things. So if you're just going off that perspective, who's the better team? I think the Celtics are better. Now, the matchup thing is interesting because obviously the clear advantage is the Celtics, despite how well Daniel Tice has played this year, and he has been really good, the Celtics do not have a great, like, back line. Their centers are relatively small compared to the Sixers, and we saw that exploited when Joel Embiid just dominated them. And we already talked about how Matisse Thibel kind of, like, cover up Kemba, and we're already worried that Kemba Walker might not be at 100% given what's going on with his knee. So that's interesting. One thing, though, though the Celtics can do that I do want to bring up is that they would actually probably play Ennis Cantor in a series against the Sixers because Cantor's big weakness is that he can't guard pick and rolls. But, I mean, we discussed it earlier. The Sixers are not very good at running pick and rolls. Like, he can actually defend okay in the post just because he's so big and strong. It's more that he, like, just can't move laterally at all. So I think they could be helped out by that. But I do think the Sixers are – like, I don't think the Celtics would be thrilled if they played the Sixers in the first round, definitely. But in terms of, like, the Heat, the interesting thing about them is that there is a chance they might really come back down to earth in terms of their three-point shooting. They were first in the NBA overall and first in above-the-break three-point percentage, whereas they were 18th in corner three-point percentage, which – a lot of that's due to Duncan Robinson, who takes a ton of above-the-break threes and is awesome, like one of the best shooters I've ever seen. But they also have like seven players on their team that are over the 73rd percentile and three-point percentage relative to their position. And that just feels like – like I don't think Kelly Olynyk and Myers Leonard are c- going to continue shooting that well this whole time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think Miami's probably a higher-variance team they're just so reliant on the three-point shot that from a game-to-game basis, it kind of boils down to like how how well are they shooting the ball, which there's not a lot of control you can do in a small sample size. Um, but I think I think you, the way you broke it down is correct. Like Boston's the better team, but Joel eats up those centers, and Miami has the shooters to on on a given night if they're hot, they could just blow you out of the gym and with bam's ability to uh play defensively against joel and uh jimmy's like revenge factor and how I'm, I'm sure he won't even sleep a, a single hour he'll just be in the gym 24 7 during the uh a series against the sixers uh and then we'll hear about it from his pr team that he, yeah that he was deadlifting at 4 a.m while also like i don't know lifting up a barbell with his neck like yeah. in Rocky and like no Creed too, like that he does in that one. Right. Oh, oh, Brian Windhorst. How did you happen to be here to catch me at two thirty in the morning at the gym? <laughs> How surprising. Uh, yeah, it's so. I, I I do think the Sixers, you know, don't match up quite as well against Miami as they do against Boston. But as I said at the beginning of the segment, I I don't think it really matters which they play. They're gonna have to play one. Like they don't have an easy path. So just 
the easy path would have been playing better this season and getting like a one or a two seed. Getting the two seed, and you get to you get to play a Brooklyn team that basically doesn't have any players left. That, yeah, that would that would be the easy path. I, I will I will say this about like the Celtics and the Heat, and I I feel bad for the Pacers. They're not a bad team. It's just with all their injuries, I'm pretty sure they're probably sliding to that six seed. Although again, the Heat could definitely the Heat they're like the Heat going two and six or one and seven is possible with their schedule, but. I think the Heat would rather play the Sixers because – and I'm not sure if it's like – it's not like one of those things where it has to be this true the other way around too, but I think the Heat like their matchups with the Sixers and the Bucks. The Heat are one of the only – I think they're the only team in the NBA to beat the Bucks twice this year. And the main thing with that is I think the Heat have like a certain kind of style that can take advantage of teams that don't shoot – all that well, like percentage wise, which I mean, the Bucks shoot a ton of threes, but their percentages aren't great overall. And the Sixers obviously have their shooting struggles, but I think the Heat don't want to play a team like the Celtics or the Raptors because Celtics and the Raptors have a lot of perimeter pull up shooters. That's like their main attack weapons. And the Heat do not have a ton of great perimeter defenders. It's really just Jimmy Butler. And even then, like, I would worry if, like, they were playing the Celtics in a first-round series that Jason Tatum's just that much taller than Jimmy Butler. He's probably pulling up over him. And then you're probably asking, like, what? Do you have? Do you ask Bam to guard, like, Jalen Brown? Because I don't know how you could ask, like, as good as they've been this season, Duncan Robinson, or maybe you put Jay Crowder on. Like, you, you know what I'm saying, where I feel like the, the Heat are more suited to stop, like, interior-based attack teams with, like, how – they are good. They are at playing zone with how versatile Bam Adebayo is. And, and they can also then take advantage of teams like the Bucks and Sixers who are usually dropping in pick and roll coverage with all their three point shooters. Whereas these like kind of rangy deep teams on the Celtics and Raptors filled with perimeter guys kind of scare them a little bit. Yeah. And with Miami's tendency to go to the zone, that's obviously much more effective against Philadelphia just because Sixers don't have you know their best two guys aren't good outside shooters and they don't have a ton of consistent shooters so they can go through those stretches where they're just ice cold and that can just that zone can just take them out of the game Hmm. whereas Boston they they have a lot of lineups where all five guys are pretty good shooters so that's not a that's not an option for Miami in that situation so Hmm. yeah yeah I I agree I I think Miami would love to play Philadelphia. They had that success against them in the regular season that we talked about. And uh, I think Jimmy would really look forward to it. He would get up for that. So, so I, if you, if you had to pick who would you take between the heat or the Celtics as who you would rather have the Sixers play if you wanted the Sixers to advance? I'd rather have them play Boston. I think. I, I think just think, cause I don't want to complicate it too much. Cause I think the matchups you, you can get so deep into it. I just think the Celtics are, better than the heat and that Miami's shooting is bound to drop off a little and the Sixers like talent advantage over Miami is that much greater that by a small fraction, I would want the Sixers to play the heat actually probably in that first round. Yeah. It's so close. I, I really just, I just wouldn't worry about it one way or another. Yeah. Again, the the best path was playing better in the regular season. That's now we're now they're set in a way where they have to probably play three really good teams if they want to make the finals. In a bubble in the middle of a pandemic. That's, that's well, what's in that, front of them. That part's not their fault. The rest is. But... <laughs> Are we sure? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for the Talking About podcast. Uh, 
me and Sean, like, did you, you had a good time? I had a good time on our first pod. Yeah, I think uh, this went well. I think we got one in the books and next week we'll be uh, talking about actual Sixers basketball games that count. So looking forward to that. Any pieces you want to plug of yours, like, or things that you might be doing come up in the next week? Uh, we're going to get back to our uh, bell ringer segment once the, the games go back into games that count. So we'll have, uh, I'll have those up after each uh, steaming game that takes place. And for those that aren't familiar with that on the site, it's basically like a kind of picking a star of the game, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the guy that mm-hmm. played the best basketball for 35 minutes. It can be a guy who had a big shot, a guy who, you know, was responsible for the turning point in the game or just somebody who did something incredibly fun and you just want to recognize it. Um, so I always have a good time writing those. So those will be up starting after the uh, first game against Indiana on Saturday. Well, that sounds great. And if you, please subscribe to this podcast, subscribe to this feed so you can listen to our show. You can listen to all the other shows that are coming here to the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. We're really excited to get this, like, get this going. Uh, you can follow Steve. Uh, Steve I sorry. I Sean, you can follow Sean. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Philly Fast Break. Is that correct? That's it. Yep. I feel so bad about calling you Steve. <laughs> Off to a great start. Hey, uh, Steve Littman is a member of our staff. He's responsible for getting this podcast network put together. He's kind of running the show there. So I can understand why you had Steve on your mind. <laughs> and you can follow me at Dan underscore Olinger on Twitter. And yeah, just thanks for listening, guys. All right. We'll catch you all next week.